Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And as always, we have a very special guest. Today we have Ravi Bola. He is a businessman and entrepreneur. And what he's going to bring to entrepreneurship is something you've probably never heard about. So definitely stay tuned for that discussion and to find out about the amazing projects that Ravi is working on. So welcome, Ravi. Thank you, Hillary. I really appreciate you having me on the, you know, on your show. Yeah. So we like to talk about things that people don't talk about. And I have never really heard anyone talk about entrepreneurship the way you do. How would you like to, you know, I'll let you introduce it because you're the expert. What, what, what would you like, to, you know, you know, when I hear of entrepreneurship, I think of, okay, starting a business and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You got to be brave and stuff like that. But I know you bring more, way more of a depth to it. So go ahead. I'm going to be quiet and let you talk. Really? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I, I, just a little bit about me, Hillary, uh, just in terms of background. Um, I was uh, I was born in India uh, about the time that uh, there was a split between India and Pakistan. And so my parents you know, early refugees. They started, they, they, they were quite successful in what is now Pakistan. It was split up. They had nothing to do with it. And they ended up, you know, with nothing. So um, they started really in, as refugees. And so the whole thing about entrepreneurship really starts there because my father uh, knew that they, that, you know, he needed to find some way to take care of his family and a better way. And his solution to uh, moving forward was education. And so education is really what drove his uh, actions. And uh, he mustered up the resources and the energy and all that to uh, apply to different schools. And he got into the University of of, of Louisville in Kentucky, he was working for the army at that time because that was the gallant thing to do, given that you'd been just defeated. And he was uh, he was an engineer, so but he thought he could do more if he knew if he learned more, and uh, so he got into um, the University of Louisville. Um, they said they didn't have anything in the way of more powerful studies and power power plants, steam powered plants were at their peak. And so here he is in Kentucky and he talks to his professor and he says, well, so what, what, what's the future? And, uh, his professor said, well, the future is going to be in science, energy, electronics. So my father said, well, I'd like to maybe look at electronics. And so he studied electronics 
And uh, when he was finished with it, he went back to his old employer in India. And they said, um, well, you know, you're the biggest fool that we've ever met because you wasted all this money and energy and we have nothing for you except the job that you left because we're still doing the same thing, hmm. right? So, of course, my dad's very, very, you know, disgruntled, and he talks to his professor at the university, and the professor says, well, here's three phone numbers that you should call. So my dad called the three phone numbers, and um, he got three job offers in the United States. And the thing was, well, what do I do with my family? Because they can't come. So for the, for that period of time when he was studying, we were going to the embassy once a week, and they wouldn't even let us go, you know, past the guard to go and see what was going on. Well, after he accepted this job, the embassy sent a car to our house to get us and saying, oh. you know, uh, that your visas are ready. You can go now. So I was 11 years old at the time. And the whole story, you know, so this whole thing about entrepreneurship, right? Unexpected things. My father had studied something that uh, was very valuable at that time. There's a big space race going on, spacecraft. And how do you make things lightweight so that you can get them into Earth orbit? And so what he'd studied made him someone that was very, very much in demand in that world, although he was kind of a nothing in the, the other world, right? And so he built himself under that. And I, I came uh, to the United States then. I, I learned how to speak English. I started school in the fifth grade. Um, and um, so his career took off because the whole space program took off and was quite successful at it. And um so I followed, you know, followed him around, of course, as just different companies wanted him. And uh, so I went to high school and uh, grew up mostly in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, and I was kind of one of the, in high school, I was not one particularly, you know, that had high grades in it. As a matter of fact, the school just wanted to get me out. So they didn't want to keep, keep you know, because I, I love to go out and, do fun things and 10 o'clock and the, you know, go, but things like, Oh, drag racing and other fun things that teenagers like to do. And so when I got out of high school, um, it was difficult for me to get into uh, any kind of a college because my academic record didn't really show it. Uh, but through, I think a lot of had to my father's efforts and his reputation, he was able to at least, get uh, Washington University, which is a very, very prestigious school, uh, to give me a shot. So I kind of woke up at that time. And uh, then I graduated at the top of my engineering class, having gone from almost being pushed out of high school because they were sick and tired of me, to someone that graduated at the top of the class of, of the wow. very, very difficult engineering school. So I studied electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. Um I was interested in medicine, and so I did a master's degree in biomedical engineering. Uh, and then ultimately, when I was doing all this kind of work with the design of different sophisticated computers and things that engineers, electrical engineers do, or did it in those days, uh, I really wanted to be um, more so out with people rather than, you know, 
in a lab bench inventing the next gadget that was going to, you know, wow the world. Um, I did do a lot of um, things like I did uh, these things that they have in the cockpits of airplanes that tell the pilot, hey, you're getting too close to the ground, you're going to crash. That was one of the things I developed when I was quite young and um, and s- similar things. So I, I went back to school. I got a, a degree in um, an MBA in finance, and that now made me multilingual. I could talk to people in engineering. I could talk to people in, um, in finance. Uh, and so it started that kind of a it opened up a pathway for me where I could do a lot of choice and what I could do. Uh, So a few years later, this company uh, called General Dynamics approached me and they said, Hey, you know, we're, we're growing very fast. Um, We're spending a lot of money. We're buying companies. Um, We're looking for someone who could bring both a, a finance person's mindset and an engineer's mindset because we're a technical company. We're doing technical things and we're in it to make money. So we want to be able to look at both sides of it. So they gave me this very, very uh, amazing job to go work with all the divisions within the company worldwide, meet with the senior management, look at what they were doing um, and, you know, understand it. And then maybe have, have an opinion and uh, discuss it with the board of this fairly massive $50 billion a year company. So it was quite awesome that way. And ultimately, uh, the management decided that given what I had shown to them, that I really didn't belong in the um, mainstream pathway of, you know, let's get you working, you know, leading 10 people. And a hundred people, then a thousand people, then ten thousand people. Uh, what we distinguished was that I was very, very effective in a space which is of chaos, where things are disorganized. They're disorganized. They're uncertain. Uh, the rules uh, and the ex- experience and the expertise really just doesn't, doesn't lend itself to be applied there. So, a big company needs. Uh, structure it needs repeatability but all of that is great and then what it does it is stifles innovation right <laughs> because you can't have innovation innovate, innovative people are like you know nutcases and in, in that right. high structure like you know like in the military you don't want rogues so mm-hmm. there's this amazing opportunity was created for me to essentially take what was considered to be of high value in terms of the future of the company and then do what it took to turn that into something that this massive machinery could actually deal with. Right. So what were, the machine. So what were you turning? Yeah. What were you turning? I know you said you're good with chaos. So what were you, to, to what take was it that you were turning? Well, and, and corporations are designed to work with order, right? Mm-hmm. Can we have methods, you know, re- repeatability, uh, reliability, uh, yeah. you know, all the structures of management, right? That are, once mm-hmm. you have something that's manageable, the structures work, but the structures of management don't work for something that's disorganized and chaotic, mm. right? Which is 
really the space of entrepreneurship because it starts, it all starts there, right? It's right. It doesn't make sense to people. They don't know why they should be interested. What are you talking about? Uh, leave me alone. Cause it sounds dangerous. All of that right. stuff is in the space. Right. Yeah. So that's what I was confronted with. And for my benefit, along with it was a recognition that if I was doing that, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be very, very unfriendly to me because I was doing things that didn't fit, didn't look, they didn't fit the picture of what a person of my position in that mega $50 billion a year company should be doing. Right. I was. And yeah. What were you doing? Did you have a project or you were like, what was your actual task? So my task was, uh, it's called strategic business alliances. Okay. Is the director okay. of strategic business alliances, which is the catch all for, you know, whatever you feel like doing basically. Uh, uh, so there would be, uh, so I got special assignments at times for one of the things was we had a big dispute with the Navy, the Navy and the Trident submarine. So it required someone to go in and look at all of the different, um, items under dispute. Right. They they said we owe you X, we said no, you owe us Y. How do you reconcile the difference? So that was one of the pieces that I worked on. And so there were opportunities always. There were the issues with the customer, there were issues with building a competitive advantage. You know, there was a big opportunity coming. And how do we make ourselves different, better, have a better competitive advantage? That was kind of my task. So I would be assigned to find those things, nurture them, uh, and then turn them over to, once they were, you know, organized and orderly, turn them over to a, a team uh, that knew how to scale them. Hmm. So so that happened for about four or five years. And then ultimately I got this uh, assignment that there was a big, big um, opportunity coming Uh and the company was investing heavily in it. And the, so my mentors at the corporate office said, Ravi, you should join this. It's going to be a big, big deal for our company. So I moved to San Diego then from St. Louis and started with a group of 19 people that were forming this new entity. And uh, we grew that from 19 people to about um, 4,000 people in about 15 years. And... Um, and then when the Berlin Wall came down, um, the 19 people that were the initial founders of that division, we got our heads together and we just bought the company from General Dynamics for $104 million. Uh, and we sold, we ran it for four or five years and sold it, you know, for about eight times that, uh, to a, to another company. So, Again, my whole role and the whole thing was still, how do we take ideas that could really give us a very, very discernible advantage uh, in a particular market that we want to be in or look at gnarly situations and relationships with significant customers or or team members we're working with. So it became a big relationship management kind of a Hmm. thing, but in a, you know, in, in a entrepreneurial environment where emotions run high. And so that's one thing in, in entrepreneurship is that it's, it's high emotion and 
it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, how experienced you are or not, there's emotion in it. So being able to deal with that is uh, was one of my big key strengths. And it's not something that's really recognized as uh, a trait of value in entrepreneurship. So, so you, so when I think entrepreneurship, I think of having your own business, but you brought entrepreneurship to this corporate job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's like different than I've ever thought of it, you know, which I'm sure you're used to it, but like, I don't think of being entrepreneurial in a big company, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always, like you said, it's not always, um, looked highly upon, especially if you have someone who likes to control things and not take risks. So anyway, so that's, that's kind of amazing that you could bring that there, you know? It was, you know, it was, it was exciting and it was also scary at the same time, right? Mm. Because you, you know, some, because I was doing things that were um, novel. They were, you know, so big companies are designed like the military. They go on command and control structure. So yeah. if you imagine a somebody in the military doing rogue things, they don't it, it they don't last right. very long there, right? So, but right. there was a system because there this was the vision and the brilliance of the management of the company to know that while they wanted structure, they couldn't grow with structure. They needed something beyond that. So right. the company brought a lot of things to the table, right? I mean, growing a big company has to do with you know. Uh, getting things done on time, being cost competitive. It brought in, you know, you had to also marshal a lot of, of uh, political and other types of relationships. Uh, so it was, it was, it, it's a very all encompassing game, but the, yeah. but the innovation really is what all, always uh, brings things. So innovation in the company, bringing innovation ideas to the customers. So cause the customers don't know what to ask for even. So they're pretty right. much stuck too. And, so they, they don't have the ability to create a new idea and issue, you know, present it to Congress or the Pentagon or the White House or, or you know, uh, in their circles. So how do you yeah. help them get stronger, right, with with that innovation? And, and in the creation of the innovation, of course, then you're the, you're the leader of it. And it gives you a great position to, you know, to... Yeah. To play the game, then. So, all right. Can I ask you a couple questions? Sure. Were there other people like you, or were you like the only one doing that? They were. Stuff? They were a handful of people like us. We didn't know each other uh, for a good reason, um, and um, so I did not have that responsibility for the whole corporation, but I had it for this okay. entity that I was building. Before that, at the corporate offices, I had it for the whole. You know, I was, was I was one of three for the whole uh, worldwide company doing that. But then when wow. I got moved to a division, a new a new venture, then I was the only one. Yeah. yeah. So okay. And, so that's that's and a little they, background of me. So when yeah. the, when we sold the company, um, and my new boss was in London, <clears throat> um, we started to have a lot of conflict because. His mindset, this was another very fascinating thing, you know, that this company bought us. And so now they had it mean that they knew what to do and we didn't know what to do. So now they needed to tell us how to do things, right? Which I don't have a problem with, but it wasn't working. And 
And these are the people that you sold it to for eight times the right. 104 million. Right. And you were still working for them. Yes. Okay. All right. And go ahead. So then, then we, you know, we would go in and say, okay, here's where we think the next opportunity is for growth. And, and the word we got back was, no, 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 you guys are thinking too small. Um, and let, let us, now that, you know, you're with some real players, yeah. let's, let's show you the way. Let us show you the way of how it is. And so there's these, so they come up with these giant contracts that were huge, right? But you would make pennies on them. I said, we're doing little contracts, but we make huge amounts of money on them. Right? Because we, yeah. we're, we're into the profitability, not the magnitude. And right. so there was friction that built into it. And, and ultimately, um, we decided it was better off to, for me to, to go off on my own. And so when I left, there were a lot of companies that, you know, wanted to hire me that work with them. Um, but I decided I pretty much kind of had a good run at it and I didn't want to, um, continue to do that. I wanted a different lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. cause all of that, that whole time, while it sounds glamorous, it, it, it was very taxing because I had to travel all over the world, sometimes eight to 10 times a year around the world. Cause I wasn't just doing stuff in my office. I was dealing with people all over the world in Australia wow. and South Africa and China and Japan and Malaysia, India, um, you know, all over Europe. So these were mega, mega deals that required a lot of, you know, getting a lot of, putting a lot of people on board. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it so was very exciting. Do? And, and I, I, my family, you know, kind of had to just be on hold and I decided that was kind of enough. And so I decided that, um, I finally distinguished what I was good at through the help of my friend. And I, of course, did a lot of amazing work with Landmark, which helped mm-hmm. me even, um, you know, which really added a whole new dimension um, to my um, to my viewpoint and to actions and uh, points of view and gave me a whole new path I could go down that I hadn't seen before. So I became stronger and even better at what I was doing. And um, now, were you when you sold the company? Were you? I mean, I know it's probably a personal question, but were you all set financially because of the huge, you know, profit that you made when you sold it? Was that a no. personal profit? No. So the the most of the company was owned by the investors. Uh, so we, okay. you know, so they made most of the money. We made some, but not enough to, you know, say, hey, you know, so. It was, it, okay, was, so it was good enough that, you know, we could, we could do some good things, but, um, so typically, you know, when you're in a big mega deal like that, it's not, um, it's mostly profitable for the people that put up the money and, and, and yes, okay. the people that are in making the money also do well, but not, not in the hundreds but of you were You didn't have a hundred million dollars now, no, so you no, could no, just no, chill no. out and take your time. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, you're I'm thinking, thinking, what's the problem? You just made, you know, eight hundred million, right? So, yeah, okay. no, no, I didn't do that. So I did okay. well, but not well enough to say, you know, this is, I don't, you know, now my I'm money, done. now my my money's going to let me live. No, it, it didn't do that. Right, okay. I, I never was interested in that. You know, I wasn't one who right. was into accumulating money. I was very excited about making money and doing innovative things and exciting things, mm-hmm. and and uh, so as long as I knew I could do it. 
and I love doing it. That was what mattered to me the most. Right. Okay. So yeah. then what happened after? So, so you, uh, well, then what did I, you find out you were, what would you were good at? What doing the innovative stuff? What was uh, yeah. your, did you find well, out your strengths were? Yeah. So my strengths were in, you know, just bringing different ideas and people together. Um, and then, you know, bringing that, bringing some structure to it, uh, and, you know, being able to create something that was valuable to a specific group of people that would be either customers, investors, or partners. Mm -hmm. So after I left and I started looking at what to do, um, I was bombarded with, you know, offers for jobs, which I didn't want. And then I found a whole bunch of people who had invested in companies that wished that there was some way they could make money with them. So I got brought in to see if I could take these. You know, a lot of time people make investment decisions on all kinds of, they, they're, you know, is it 10,000 reasons why people invest in things, although they all say, right. you know, say some bogus stuff about why they did it. But right. um, it wasn't making money. And so could I come and take a look? Um, would I be interested in, you know, serving on boards? So I started taking board positions. I started taking hands-on in small to mid-sized companies. And I started really looking at um, um, what was really going on in the space of entrepreneurship. And what I saw was that there's just an amazing amount of pent-up energy in entrepreneurs at large, is what I saw. And that if we could somehow bring that innovation, right, to a space where it could be uh, available, right, for the public at large, it could do a lot of good. It could do good, not, you know, typically entrepreneurship has to do with money-making ventures, but entrepreneurship for me is a way of being. It's mm. you know, how, do you, how do you deal with the things of entrepreneurship, right? Because most people have uh, uh, an understanding. You, either you're an entrepreneur or you got a job. Well, right. so I'm saying entrepreneurship for me is something where you have to deal with three things that we're not really trained to deal with as uh, as in our conventional educational system. One is the um, um, uncertainty. How do you deal with uncertainty? Two is how do you deal with failure? Mm -hmm. And uh, then how do you alter your relationship to risk? I don't know about you, but I never learned any of that when I was going through all this massively expensive and high-end education. Mm -mm. Did you? They never tell you what to do when you fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I did when I, well, not to sidetrack, but when I was uh, studying systems, this was back when computer systems were mm -hmm. were new, we actually did have some studies on what failed, you know, because people didn't know what they were doing. So we actually did. This was a long time ago. But mm -hmm. um, so that was the only time I saw it in school. But anyway, go ahead. Uncertainty, failure and relationship to risk. That's where right. you were at. <laughs> so so the conventional thinking then is right. If something's un uncertain, let's mm -hmm. figure out how to. Since we don't know how to deal with it, and we do know how to deal with things that are certain, let's make it certain. Mm. Okay? Because we know how to deal with certain things. Even if they were wrong. 
Well, you you know, it, it's really bizarre because you can't make something that's inherently uncertain right. certain just, just because it's convenient, right? Right. And you know how to deal with it. Are they trying to control it? Is that what bringing certainty is? Is that some way to control it or control the the uncomfortable feeling, would you say? I, I think that has a lot to do with it because, you know, when you're in uncertainty and you don't know how to deal with something, there's a huge amount of noise coming out of your emotions, right? They're saying, you know, they, they, yeah. they got on loudspeaker big time. The volume like, gets what big. are you doing? Yeah. You have to stop. Yeah. You better yeah. stop it. This yeah. is not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Control yourself. Yeah. 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 You gotta get back in your little comfort box. Yeah. yeah. Wake, wake up. Wake up. You know, you, you know, don't you understand you're doing something stupid here? I mean, you, yeah. So all of that, all that programming we have, which is designed to, you know, keep us safe, hmm. right? Also becomes a limit. Yeah. Because that's one thing you deal with. The other thing I find very interesting in entrepreneurship is how it's taught. So, Successful entrepreneurs write books. Many people right. think that if they read those books, they'll become successful. Right? And the example mm -hmm. I tell people is I love to golf, right? And so I read a book on how to be a great golfer and how to hit the ball and how to do this. You know what happens when I go do all that? Nothing. What's always <laughs> happened before. Right. So, so there's, there's like this seduction that if you find the roadmap from an expert, it's going to give you a shortcut. Mm -hmm. That shortcut will give you then safety from uncertainty, failure, and risk. Oh. Right? And that seduction is what interferes, in my opinion, in my exploration with, uh, you know, the fulfillment of an entrepreneurial vision. Because well, yeah, because... If yeah. you take a, if you take, let's say, you know, if entrepreneurship <clears throat> is uncertainty, failure in relationship to risk, I mean that, and you take, you now take a formula in someone's book, you've now taken out the uncertainty, you know, willingness to fail, if that's what it is, right, and, right. and being willing to risk because you've now put it back in the box, right? Right. right. Just because you know how to deal with that box. You're trying yeah. to change the world to fit your reality rather than deal with its reality, the real, the yeah. real reality rather than the one in your head. Wow. Okay, so then what? If so books aren't the answer. <laughs> yeah, so, but, you know, people think because they're adults, they, they have a different path of learning than kids do. They don't think that practice and repetition and Failing and all that. If they, if we believed all that, you know, when we were kids, we'd never learn how to ride a bike. Right. Yeah. Right. But we're trying to. Hey, just, Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just looked at the time. So, even though I don't want to stop right here, I'm going to write it down. Play adult, and then we're going to go to the commercial break, and then we're going to come back. Okay. And learn more because this is very cool. Okay. Good. All right. Thank you, Ravi, and. We'll see you in a, in a minute or two. Okay. Right. 
Has social emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used the Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, instead of a conversation. Welcome back to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And as always, thanks to our sponsor, KikoriApp.com. If you want to bring experiential social-emotional learning to your schools or to your teams, go to KikoriApp.com and schedule a time. Uh, you can definitely ask for Haley. She's my daughter, and she's extra special. And they're doing amazing things for our kids and our companies. So go to KikoriApp.com. And as always, if you find yourself stuck or making yourself, trying to fix yourself, my book, my third book, Your Bullshit is Your Blessing, is the answer to what you're looking for. It's how to stop fixing yourself and start having more fun. And I'll tell you what, I was someone who was trying to fix myself. I wasn't always positive. I thought there was something wrong with me. If you're like me, you're a a cup half full kind of gal or guy. Read this book. It'll definitely help you. You can find it on Amazon. And if you're someone who doesn't like to speak up or doesn't think you should, you shouldn't complain, you shouldn't say certain things, Real Talk is the book for you. This helped me when I started saying things I didn't think I could say. My life started opening up and I started getting freedom. So this one you can get at realtalkwithhillary.com. And you can get the book there and sign up for a conversation with me. And I'll tell you what, I use step one all the time and it gets me free when I'm in my head and stuck. The subtitle, how to say the things you've never said so you can have the things you've always wanted. And this stuff works. But now we're going to go back to our special guest, Robbie Bola. We were at a very exciting part in the conversation. So let's bring him back. Welcome, Robbie. Thank you. Okay. All right. So we were talking about if adults were like kids, when kids aren't afraid of failing, they're not afraid of uncertainty. They love risk, right? 
They'll go do crazy things like you used to do in drag racing. So how do you, how do we make this transition for adults? How do we bring that back as adults? Well, I think, you know, and just looking at it, you know, when I look at how I raise my kids, um, I think someone around the time then they were in the early teens, you know, my wife, Margaret, and I decided it was time for them to become, to grow up. And so growing up, our version of growing up meant now we need to instill some level of judgment into them. They need to be able to judge better than they are. So let's transfer our wisdom around judgment to them. And it's in the transfer of that to them that all of that stuff that made them amazing uh, children, uh, wanting to be curious, learn, grow, uh, have a powerful relationship to uh, the various things that were related to, um, started to diminish. And what do you mean by that? Was that a or was that a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think well, you killed depends. off their play, or you were trying well, to save it? Yeah. Well, go ahead. As, as, the, as the judgments, you know, we told them, so we we transferred to them our quote our brilliance and our and our you know our toolkit of judgments, right? It then started to diminish what was they were willing to do because mm, okay. course, you know they trusted us and and it wasn't just us society also at the same time you know decided that you know we need to get these wild things called teenagers under control yes so let's, let's let's figure out what we know how to do and so so it's some version of that although you know i haven't thought a lot about it but i, I do realize that so at some point, we, when we transition from being children to adults, there is this distinct line. And then, you know, let's start to constrict the reality so that they can be, quote, more productive, useful uh, members of society. So they could or be organized. They could go into a big structure. They could be, you know, they could fit in. They can be part of a machine and you know, and play and according to the rules of that game and, and, you know, and because that's what we have available in our experience to give to them. Yeah. My experience. Yeah. So, so when did you, I mean, I'm thinking that you saw that this restricted them. Yes. But, but, but not, but you didn't at know the, it at the time. At the time I did not know. Yeah. Okay. At that time, you know, my education was very limited in the area of, you know, people and how do people really work and, and, you know, um, and so my journey has revealed some very interesting things to me because I, you know, I write business plans, I read business plans, I invest in companies, other people invest in mine. Uh, and so there's a thing, there's always a discussion about risk and all of that is fabricated because those are all risks that people know about. And my experience is that none of the risks that are really put in there are ever the ones that do anything to you at all. Mm. They're old risks. They're, there's ways to deal with all those old things, right? Now, so, is that yeah, is that because people don't know the the real ones or because they don't know how to deal with them or they don't want to put uncertainty in? Well, I think, I think that 
at least in my case, it was really from ignorance because I thought that risks were fixed, that the, all the risks there were that could be already known, so I have to pick one of them. Oh, I, was, okay. I wasn't looking for new risks. <laughs> Who would? Why would you? <laughs> yeah, why would you? They're right. bad. Let me, just, let me just figure out how to deal with them. Let me not know what they are. Let me just deal with them. <laughs> okay, good. Right? Yeah, so, this is interesting. Right. It's very interesting. So okay, one, of the things, one of the things that was really surprising for me was that the biggest risk uh, that any business or entrepreneurial venture of any kind takes on is a, is a risk that is so obvious that it's invisible. Uh, because mostly the obvious stuff you don't look at. Because why would you? What was it? It's, it's a relationship risk. Every venture is relationship yeah. risk. The relationship amongst the principles of the company. Oh. Because things don't go like they're supposed to in things that are inherently uncertain. And people have different ways to deal with when it doesn't go like it's supposed to. That engages a whole bunch of emotion and takes you out of rational thinking. And in the world of emotion, it can be very, very constructive or it can be extremely destructive. Yes, I have seen myself that way when triggered. Yeah. So I now don't wow. look at the, I don't look at the business plans. I don't look at the uh, I look at the people. Do I believe whether I'm looking at you working with them, hiring them, investing in them, or co-investing with them, are these the kind of people that I can count on to get through all of that emotional storms, right, that come and go with every relationship on the planet? And how would you ever know how you someone will react? I mean, I could be pretty calm, and then you do something that, embarrasses me or something i'm out of here and you're right. a jerk you know like right. now, yeah. As, yeah as i'm seeing that i can now train it yeah i hadn't seen it until i saw it i didn't know i got rid of people so fast right you know well, you embarrass me you're out you yeah. know but i've had a lot of training so how would you know how would you ever know well i think it all... that's why it's risk <laughs> I think that, I think that you have a very very um, you know I think you make a very good point. It starts with me, yeah. right? Because I'm like them. I also get triggered, mm -hmm. and when I'm triggered, I am destructive like everybody else, yes. right? Right. Next. <laughs> right. I'm done yeah. with you. Next. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that is a really a really really amazing part of being in the space of entrepreneurship. Because to, to be responsible for yourself as a human being, uh, when you're dealing with uncertainty, failure, fear, and all the other stuff that's in that space, which which is how it's how entrepreneurship is lived, it's not taught or learned that way, but that's how it's lived. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, you know, so all of this in terms of background, and then what I decided ultimately to do, I want to do something about it, you know. And so I picked an area. Um, I my family is very very active in this area of uh, health and wellness, and uh, I have uh, expertise in entrepreneurship and in 
you know, building companies and scaling up companies and kind of building the bridge between entrepreneurial ideas and a scalable company. So uh, I decided that there was a big need for really having higher quality, good quality food. Uh, so I started a company, uh, which I'm very actively working on right now, called Urban Farms Limited. It's a, a website is www.urbanfarmsltd.com. So that company is, is uh, its intention is to build 25 massive indoor farms around the United States. Uh, each of these farms will produce a couple of tons of food a day. It will be very clean food. It'll be indoors, so it will be it won't have any herbicides, pesticides, no chemicals, uh, and it'll be uh, grown so it has a minimum amount of nutritional density in the food. We eat food for energy and for nutrition. The nutrition helps us the body function. Also, the food is the uh, construction material because our body, unlike an engine, rebuilds itself every few months. So if, if critical things are missing in the food, it can't replicate the cells properly. So therein lies, I believe that that's why there is the opportunity for disease to kick in and why disease is going out of control. So mm-hmm. the idea of pumping people up with more pharmaceuticals maybe uh, should be a last resort rather than the first thing we do. We should really work on how do we take care of our health. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, a lot of entrepreneurs in that space that are really uh, that have innovative ideas and to be able to how can I use these urban farms as a space in which we could uh, prob- you know do good good food, but also foster some of the entrepreneurial energy that can have the message spread and and you know because. I think once there is a nucleus of entrepreneurial energy, it spreads like wildfire. And so we want to create that in each of our locations. So our now first- why, why, why indoor? I'm just wondering, like, you don't have sun. Why indoor is my question. So, so, so there is a belief uh, that plants lead, need sunlight to grow. Yeah. And it, it's not true. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so, so, uh, What's so is that they need a part of the sunlight, not all of it. Okay. So a big part of the sunlight is use the plant. The, what you see of a plant is energy being expended because they can't use it. It has to get rid of it. The green, mm-hmm. the red, the yellow, it can't use that. So it's, it's trying to protect itself and say, let me get rid of it. So if you give it only what it needs, there's no energy going into getting rid of what it doesn't need. So it grows faster. Okay. And so indoors we can create an optimum scenario for growing plants so that there's no interference from bugs other plants the we control the temperature the you know each plant has a different optimum you know kind of a gas and temperature and humidity they need so we control that we don't deal with the weather variability so so once we get it started it's at 100 percent reliable production at a hundred percent all the time. But it's not like fake food because you're no, doing no, it. Inside. It's real food. You know? It's real food. Hmm? It's not like modified or anything no, because you're no, doing no. it inside. You're actually taking the goodness and bringing it, making it more good. Right. Well, we're, we're, we're taking the goodness. We're, we're 
taking all the toxic stuff off of it that that put yeah. on it with huh. conventional uh, farming methods, which yeah. is really that that those toxic chemicals, although they're small, over time you eat them enough, they start to interfere with your body's me- metabolic system, and yeah, you know, and huh. all the diseases. There's a big correlation between when all these herbicides and pesticides started going on plants and the uh, the uptick in in national and international disease. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's where the motivation comes from. Yeah. And to do that, to do that in, you know, in terms of in a scale, right? So each one of these urban farms is around 25 to $30 million. Uh, oh. We're building the first one in um, South Dakota. And um, we did it in South Dakota because South Dakota uh, really wants and is hungry for innovation. They know... Oh that they're on the, on the tail end of the food distribution teams. So massive amounts of food go to big cities, but they don't go to South Dakota. Right. Right, because it's not I've convenient. I've seen their commercials. Yeah. I've seen yeah. commercials for South Dakota. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. So we, so we got, uh, so we, we started a, uh, uh, a process with some like-minded people. And my wife and I were very, very active and we canvassed, uh, different, you know, political and different, uh, uh, businesses and different influence centers of influence. And so we have this idea that we would like to propose. Here's what we're thinking. And, you know, we'd love to get you to buy in with us and support us. So the state of South Dakota thought what we're doing is amazing and is financially contributing. Wow. A substantial amount of money to us, okay, uh, to to induce us to come and bring our know-how, our skill set, and and you know what we're pr- proposing to their community and to their uh, environment. Uh, so they want the health. The other thing that they want is that you know as their young people graduate from um, their educational institutions, they leave. Because there's nothing for them to do. There's no jobs to pay, you know, well, because the job market is not expanding in a, mm-hmm. uh, as quickly as it needs to. So can we bring some of that? So we're, we're bringing in a, uh, a part of our uh, offer to them. We'll take people, kids from high school, from their STEM programs, from their, uh, community colleges and train them, hire them, train them and make them available for doing more of these kind of things, you know, within, because we think this indoor farming is in the early stages of, of its, its development. It'll increase. So it, it also insulates us from things like climate change, because, you know, in, in South Dakota, you can only grow food three or four months out of the year. The rest of the time you can't. So being able to produce good quality food that's fresh and delivered to you like the same day, as it was harvested, right, in scale. All year, right? All year round, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we've got some financial support coming in from the state. The USDA heard about what we were doing and they said, we'd love to support you as well. So they're coming in with a substantial amount of, of, of backing for us as well. And so, and then we have some uh, investors that were, are raising, we're raising $8 million of the 25 from investors. The rest is coming in from the state of South Dakota and from the USDA. 
And uh, so this, this will produce around two tons of food a day. We have grocery stores and restaurants and catering companies and all in the area that are eager for us to get going. Wow. Yeah. And so we, we oh. have a piece of land uh, there. We've got done all the feasibility studies. We've got the, the designs done. Uh, we raised uh, uh, some amount of money and we're now increasing the amount of money we're raising. So we were looking for like-minded people that can... Yeah that would love to see that happen, not only in South Dakota, but maybe in their own cities or in their neighborhoods. Because um, we, although we're doing big ones in the, um, uh, I'm talking about, not everybody needs a big one. So we're do, helping people that, you know, some with smaller ones, something for a school, something for a, that supports like a, a community. Yeah. Uh, wow. And so, so- all right, so we have three minutes left. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that you get to, you know, let people know. Obviously, you're looking for people who would be interested in the project, investing, you know. So say, you know, how they would find you, what you're looking for, and, you know, what your real vision is, you know, in the next five to ten sure. years if this takes off. So go ahead. So, so you know, my... Website is the first place to look just to get an overview. There's a video and there's a lot of drop downs about who are we, what's our background, what are we trying to do. It's got all the okay. phone numbers on how to reach me. It's got the okay. email addresses and all that. So it's www.urban, U-R-B-A-N, farms, F-A-R-M-S, L-T-D, dot com. Okay. And my email address, I'm a person I'm the I'm the founder and the principal shareholder in the company because most of the money okay. has gone into it. Been today it has been my my own money. It's, it's significant. It's been a couple of million bucks, um, and so now I'm looking for happiness. I've done a lot of the preparatory work, laid the foundation. I have raised money from some friends and family, and now I'm going beyond that. And uh, I'm I'm really in a very very you know ecstatic space. We have a lot of excitement from everybody the the local community the state and and frankly the usda so it's just a very exciting time and i uh, i believe that this urban farm will you know uh, impact the health and the wellness of many of the people and inspire a lot of entrepreneurs to come forth and so how can we get them to unleash their ideas and their uh genius to be able to impact you know uh the, the overall good, having a, the place be a better place to live and be, let's be healthier and figure out how to take, you know, care of our own health rather than, you know, go to the, uh, let's, let's drug everybody and, you know, and, and then kind of just forget about the, uh, the side effect because the side effects many times in my experience are worse than the disease you're trying to cure. Right. So yeah. your vision, so your vision for the next, let's say five years, if this really took off, how do you see you this or your vision for the world? What would that look like? So, so, so if it took off, we would have 25 of these running domestically. We mm-hmm. would have a template then for other people that want to do this in other parts of the world. We'd also have some kind of a uh, methodology for how do we engage and, you know, enable and, and support the local entrepreneurial uh, spirit yeah. in those communities, right? So that they could actually yeah. 
bring that forth because we're looking for, you know, I think that entrepreneurship, the country is facing challenges right now. And there's all kinds of, you know, um, rhetoric and opinions about why and blah, blah, blah. But one thing for sure is that every time, you know, we've gone through crises, it's always been the entrepreneurs that have lifted us out and, you know, carved out a new path. So I'm standing for, you know, empowering entrepreneurs so they can really lead us, you know, to the next stage of where we need to go as a, as a country and as a, as, as a global population. All right. That's awesome. So you're, you're empowering entrepreneurs. You're uh, giving us better health, better food choices. You know, you're, you're impacting all of that just with this one project. So thank you so much. I, I'm sorry we're at the end because I'd love to hear I'm more, but we can have you back again and you can talk about your other projects and how this is yeah. working. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing all the people that reach out to you who yeah. are in that, you know, who want to do something entrepreneurial. Maybe they don't have their own idea, but this is something they could take and run with it with your help yeah. and the, the help of other entrepreneurs. So thank you so much. Anything yeah, I think, quick in closing? Because we're. Well, I think also, so I've said a lot about this and I've been talking about you know, the finances of it. And of course, what I didn't say, but I want to say it is that. You know, it's also a great investment for for investors. So we are not, yeah. you know, just a. So we we make because of the our ingenuity and our and our designs and everything. Uh, we you know we're going to be extremely profitable. So it's a great investment while doing good. Okay, sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you Thanks. so much for what you're doing for South Dakota, for the country, for the world, and thank you for you know for bringing this conversation to life with the uncertainty, failure, and relationship to risk of entrepreneurs and for learning how to navigate that. And, you know, it's just incredible. So thank you, Ravi. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for watching this episode. I started getting real with Hillary when I discovered that I was a people-pleasing, pleasant phony and wanted to be more of my real self. We can grow together. If you will like the show, subscribe to my channel and share this episode with your friends and family so that we can have a world that's more real.